0: You're listening to TIP.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. Once a quarter, we get our good friends Toby Carlow and Hari Ramachandra to join us for our quarterly mastermind discussion. If you're not familiar with the format, each person brings one stock pick to the table and they pitch the rest of the group on the idea that the company might be a great investment. After the pitch, the remaining members of the group provide feedback and risk considerations on why the investment might be good or why they might have some concerns. It's a great opportunity for us to go through our line of thinking and hone our skills at asset valuation. So, without further delay, we hope you enjoy our mastermind discussion for the third quarter of 2018.
0: You are listening to the Investors Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: All right. Welcome to the show. We are always excited to do our mastermind discussions. And for people that have listened to these before, you know the group. But if not, we have Toby Carlow. He's with us from the Acquirer's Fund. And we also have Hari Ramachandra. He works at Salesforce as a senior director of engineering, works out in Silicon Valley. He's worked at other companies, call it LinkedIn or or whatever, but he's our expert out in the Valley. And uh, Stig and myself. So. Without further delay, let's go ahead and kick this thing off. And I believe, Stig, you were going to go first with your pick for this quarter.
2: Yes. So my pick for this quarter, that is Google. And uh, I'm very excited to hear what you guys have to say before I do my pitch. It's not your typical value pick at all. So I'm I'm really excited. But 80% of the revenue right now comes from digital advertising. And you're probably familiar with a lot of their... Products, you know, AdWords, AdSense, Gmail, Google Maps, or whatnot. Uh, they have a lot of streams of revenue, and then you have 15% of the revenue comes from. They actually called other revenue. It's a very original name, and then other bets, which is the cloud that they're right now investing heavily in, apps in Google Play, uh, hardware, and so on and so forth. Lately, I think a lot of people have noticed that Google has in the media about breaking antitrust laws, the fine of $5 billion from the European Union. And just to give you guys some perspective, $5 billion, that comes out of an operating income trading 12 months of $30 billion. So it is significant, even though it's not something, of course, that will have detrimental effect on Google. Just as a fun fact, I can share that the last record of fines given by the European Union. That was back in 2017, $2.7 billion, and that was also Google. And it's primarily from you know, bundling search engine and Chrome apps into operating system and so on and so forth. So kind of like a ring from the, uh, from the past with Internet Explorer and, and Netscape, I guess. But if we look at the main source of revenue, digital advertising, this is a huge industry. We're looking around $250 billion in the market or so. That is out of all global ad spending, which includes, you know, radio, television also. But two hundred and fifty billion that that is only digital advertising where Google is huge. You have the the industry that is growing. Last year it was growing at twenty one percent, so it is rapidly growing. And uh, Facebook and Google accounted for ninety percent of that growth. If we look at the mode and I can already say here, it's very interesting that we have Carter with us here out from the valley, because he can probably talk more about the mode than I can. Of course, it's their algorithm and it's the search engine optimization. I think you come up with many different types of mode. So it really depends on where you, you focus. I like the idea of that the core business that they have right now, they do not need to uh, reinvent themselves the same way as say something like Apple. They're so dependent on their iPhones. I see a lot of moat right now in Google's algorithm and the search engine optimization. They're sitting on 90% of the market share. It's not up for me to say if it's a better algorithm than other search engines. I don't really know if it is, but it is the go-to place and the platforms where programs are working in. So I know this is a long pitch. And before I jump into AI and all the other good stuff, I would like to talk about valuation and, and hope to get some feedback. It's kind of Difficult for me valuing a pick like Google. As a value investor, I typically have the idea that let's assume that nothing happens. Okay, if nothing happens, uh, what kind of cash flows are coming in and what kind of returns can we get? That really doesn't make too much sense with Google, or at least if you do that, you'll realize that the valuation right now is supposed to be overpriced. So, what I did was I used a two stage growth model in terms of expecting. How much growth can we get over a relatively short period of time, and then slowly see a decline after that. So again, it all depends on the assumptions that you put in. But if you assume a 15% growth over the next five years annually, and then actually just cut it off and then have a 3% perpetuity growth after that, then you will come up with a valuation right now around 7.5% expected return. So I'm very curious to hear from the group right now what kind of thoughts you have about having Google. And if I can throw it over to Hari first, I'm very curious to hear from someone who knows Google better than most what you have to say about the evaluation, but also Google in general.
3: Well, thank you, Stig. This is a great pick and probably timely from, for based on the current events. And uh, I think you highlighted some of the key points which are Are very significant and um, as you said I guess 85% of Google's revenue is still from advertising so just to put things in context they are still massively dependent on advertising as a form of revenue whether it is search or YouTube or other properties that they have however they have a lot of bets that is going on so to me Google represents optionality in the sense that uh, they do self-driving cars, uh, they have their uh, Google platform, uh, and then they have other initiatives that are going on and some of which we don't even know at this point of time. So that's number one. For me, number two, I'm hitting on some of the qualitative aspects here. Uh, I guess Toby and Kristen will be better at commenting on the valuation aspects. I'm, I'm gonna leave it to them. The second thing that I feel in the Valley or in in the tech industry, one metric I look for, which is usually not in their balance sheet, is their ability to attract talent. And uh, in the pecking order of the Silicon Valley, and if you for now ignore some of the really hot startups, just among the bigger companies, or even the mid-sized companies, Google is the top contender. I think uh, if there is an in this, If an engineer is coming out of uh, Berkeley or MIT, any other company except for Facebook, he most likely will choose
1: Google. Stig, I wanted to talk about the valuation part that you were saying because I like the way that you uh, went about valuing it. I'm a fan of this pick. I think that this is a, you know, out of all the picks that we're going to be talking about on today's show, I think I like this one the best. When we look at how the company's performed over the past 10 years, What I did is I went and looked at the top line. What was the growth rate of that revenue over the last 10 years? And when you look at that, it's at around a 19% growth rate for the last 10 years annually. So if we start with that as our foundation saying, this is what they've done in the past, and what they've done in the past is unbelievable. Can they do that moving into the future? So if we start with that as our foundation for valuation, if they made 19% annually in their top line, And they continue to make 19% in their top line. What kind of valuation comes out starting with that as our baseline? And then we can adjust from there to kind of determine whether we think that that can be sustained or not sustained. So if we start with that valuation and we say that it's going to continue to grow at 19% for the next 10 years, and then after that, we'll just use inflation at the current price, you're going to get around a 9% return. So now the question becomes well, do you think it can keep growing at 19%? And, you know, I don't think that we're going to hit those kind of numbers. I mean, maybe I might be wrong, but I would say maybe 10%, maybe half of what they've done in the past is what maybe they'll do in the coming 10 years. And so then let's look at what that number kind of produces as far as evaluation goes. And so when we plug in 10% growth into the future for the next 10 years, we're getting more around a 4% return. And, you know, if it's less than that, well, then you're right where the rest of the market's. Priced at, so I think it's priced better than the market. My personal opinion, because I do, I don't think that ten percent for them in the next ten years is out of the question, especially with where they're at with AI. But I, I think there's a lot of unknowns, and I think it's you know those are big numbers to, to produce in the coming ten years, and I think that that no one's going to argue with that. So. I agree with everything that Hari said, specifically on the TensorFlow stuff and their cloud computing and the way that they're going to be basically outsourcing resources and also storage on their platform, because I think everyone's going to want access to their open source AI. And I say open source with quotes around it, but I'm a fan. I'm definitely a fan, especially when you look at some of the other stuff that's out there.
4: Yeah, Stig, I agree with you that Google is a phenomenal business and the growth rates in it are just uh, astonishing for how big it is. It's a market cap's like 866 billion, enterprise value is about 770, which means that it's got roughly $100 billion in cash and investments sitting around. The thing that I run into, the problem that I have with it is I think it's expensive. It's at he's like 54, if I look at the metrics that I like, like an acquirer's multiple 25, enterprise multiples on like 20. If you look at any of the quality metrics, it scores off the charts on any of those quality metrics. So I think it's one of those companies that it's very hard to lose much money in something like this because you buy it it likely is a bigger company 10 years from now. The question is how much bigger over the 10 years and therefore does it justify the price currently? It's not a company that I would invest in because it's just the valuation turns on the growth. And the growth has been extraordinarily high, and it has to continue to be extraordinarily high. If it does that, then you get pretty good return, but not a phenomenal return. Whereas if it disappoints on any of those metrics, then the return is going to be much more subdued. But I don't think it's a stock you lose money. And so I think that the risk reward is interesting. Like the downside is very little. The, the, the question that you have is how much money can you make? So, you know, for that reason, it's not a bad pick.
1: I want to talk risks as well, Toby, because. Well, we saw recently with Mark Zuckerberg going up on the hill and testifying in front of Congress, and they were asking their questions, which were absolutely hilarious. You could quickly tell that there's a a major gap in what I would say the majority of Americans or anyone around the world really kind of understand about tech and what Silicon Valley understands about tech. and Until that gap gets shored up, I don't necessarily know that you're going to have the regulations kind of take hold, but I think that that day is coming. And I think that what the focus is going to eventually turn to from legislators is a focus on making your data history more accessible and easier for you to adjust. As soon as they get on that narrative and and as soon as they start forcing that into some type of regulation where Let me give you an example. You go on the Facebook and it's required by law that in the navigation bar, there's a button you can click that goes into your entire history of every single thing that they've collected on you. And that you can go in there and amend and tweak that at ease. And I think that that's where the legislation is going to change is that it's very easy somehow that the spirit of that is built into the law, that they have to make it very easy for people to go in and amend their history and what's being collected on them. Once that happens, the ad revenues for Google, Facebook, whatever, drastically changes in my personal opinion. Because if I can go in there and see every single piece of data that company X is collecting on me and I can delete it you know, with one click, boy, the whole game changes and, and the money that these companies are making are going to be drastic. The problem that I think you got right now is an education problem from legislators. They know there's a problem, and I think most people don't like not being able to control that. I think if you interviewed 100 people and asked them, do you wish you could control the data that's being collected on you with a couple clicks? Everyone, Every single person is going to say yes. But what the problem is, is you don't have legislators that can basically orate that or basically... Say that that's what the issue is—is is the control of the history of data. Instead, they're asking silly questions like, you know, are are you collecting on my text messages, and not really talking about what the fundamental problem is. And the fundamental problem is is that people don't have control of the data that's being collected on them from a historical context. And as soon as they figure that out, I think it's going to be a bad thing for Silicon Valley.
4: I've got a question for you. In that sort of scenario, though, would you rather be Google or would you rather be Facebook?
1: I think both of them are going to be uh, punished extremely hard on this. But to, be, to answer your question, if I had the pick, I would probably say Google.
4: I don't think that people realize how much data Google collects on them, whereas you sort of feel like you've shared a lot with Facebook, which is why there's a lot of enmity towards Facebook at the moment. And I think that's even shown up in some, like their daily average use has dropped pretty significantly over well, the last, might be 10%.
1: This, and, and to your point, I completely agree with you. To your point, how often are you on Facebook and whatever number you come up with? How often are you using a web browser? Okay. And what's going through the web browser? I mean, I'll even take it a step further. I've got Google routers at my house. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out real fast who's collecting more information on you.
4: <laughs> and you can if you log into the Google page and you can see, you know, it tracks your cell phone so it can see everywhere you've been for years and years and years. That's yeah. that's pretty scary.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that that's really, when you get to the crux of the issue, as soon as legislators figure out that what I just described is the issue, the question then becomes, okay, well, they were making this much money per person when they had full open access to pretty much anything that they wanted and people couldn't delete anything. But if that would change and you got, let's just say 10 or 30% of the population literally wipes their entire history clean. And we're making a very strong assumption that something like that would ever exist. But if it would exist, what happens to
0: their numbers? Oh, man, I think it's going to be brutal.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously. And the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show.
2: Yeah. So I completely agree with your concerns about the valuation. I mean, it is, it is hard to bring a growth pick or whatever you want to call Google into a group of, of value investors. <laughs> I guess... Uh, and so I completely agree with you guys. It looks really, really hard. Whether or not you would use my 15% for five years or Preston's 10% for 10 years, I think it's really, really difficult. I like Preston's approach about saying, what's the top line, which is basically also what I did, and I subtracted some. I mean, it's not really a scientific art whenever it comes to you know, predicting crazy growth rates. Because I mean, you have to come up with something and, and argue for why you think it should be 15 times 5 or 10 times 10, whatever you want to come up with. I think whenever it comes to Google, I think one thing that is unknown, and I know that I am talking like a growth investor right now, and not as the value investor I would like to be. I think the future of AI, I think is going to be very interesting. I think that Google right now is probably best positioned. And again i'm not the right person to ask it's probably better to talk to to hari and someone who who knows what they're talking about what i know with, with the little knowledge i have about google you know with Tenderflow and for them more or less being the standard if you look at the numbers and the dollar value of the, the acquisitions in ai i mean google or you know they're buying up more ai property than anyone else combined which is in itself like pretty crazy whenever you think about it so to me, it looks. I think that part looks appealing. Uh, I think, in terms of digital advertising, I don't think that we will see a dramatic slowdown. Even though, of course, a recession wouldn't be too good. There's a lot of room to grow for digital advertising right now, and it's hard for me to see that Google and Facebook won't continue to be the emerge as the winner. I also do want to say, if we look at the valuation right now, and if we look at you know compared to the past 13 years, I like to look at the EV to the EBIT. It's not too different from whenever Toby's talking about the cost multiple. We have a median of 18, and it's slightly above right now. In his historical perspective, it's not good. And the last thing I just want to say before I throw it over to the group is, you know, just for full disclosure, I am long Google. I bought here some time ago, not a decade ago like I should, but I am actually right now considering whether or not I should add more to that position at the price levels it is. Again, I am almost blinded by how great company it is. And I'm probably too optimistic with the growth rates.
1: Hey, I, I wanted to throw one thing out there, Stig. So we're following this ticker AIEQ, which is this artificial intelligence ETF. Berkeley PhDs are the guys that have stood this thing up. This thing's scouring the entire web, and its number one pick out of its entire portfolio of every single stock on the market is Google. And uh, I mean, I'm not. There's no analysis to that as far as valuation, growth, whatever. But I can tell you that this bot that's using machine learning has selected Google as its number one pick. I, I also want to say that the risk that I highlighted with respect to the legislators and stuff like that, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I really don't. I I think that you know, although we talk about it, could it happen? Yeah, I mean, it might be years out there, but. From what I'm seeing and what I saw on that last thing with Mark being on the Hill testifying, I mean, they're nowhere close to standing some type of policy up or anything that's going to limit this.
2: You know, Harry, I would really like to ask you about this AI piece. I mean, I know it's always horrible to say this time is different. I think we have tried that so many times in financial markets and we are usually always wrong. It is, however, astonishing to see what Google can achieve with only 89,000 employees. It's incredible the kind of growth rates they have, considering the size. You shouldn't be able to produce so much revenue and produce so much profit with the amount of people they have. Will AI you know, completely wash out the conventional metrics in many ways with an exponential growth, even for something as big as Google, in your opinion, Hari?
3: One of the things I find very troubling is the way uh, AI is being used as a buzzword for everything nowadays. And that's the risk and ibm watson is famous for just slapping ai on everything they do it's actually a automated checklist for the most part so i think that's where we have to be careful in buying into the hype for google actually is more relevant in search uh, and youtube which we don't seem to notice in fact uh, their their ai and machine learning are from their search background because they perfected it with their search engine, the way they can predict what you want to type in, all that stuff. And uh, and we should not also forget YouTube. I think uh, what I've heard is YouTube's mission is to take over your living room. I feel among all the companies, Google has the most hold. I think Stig, uh, sorry, Kristen uh, kind of gave a very nice uh, overview of how his life is now, being captured by Google, I think Google is in our living room uh, with Google Home, and then you have YouTube on your TVs, uh, the Android TVs with Android, as well as Google Search, uh, and with the self-driving car, I think you will be pretty much living a Google life.
2: Okay, guys. Thank you so much for the feedback. Let's move on to the next pick, and that would be Hari. You're up, man.
3: Okay. Continuing on the same theme, I thought it would be timely and interesting to bring up Facebook. Uh, the reason I want to bring up Facebook is it has been in a lot of uh, news for not really good reasons. Due to their recent guidance and quarterly results, their stock has taken, had taken a beating. Now it's kind of recovered a little bit. But at the same time, I want to just cover um, some of their key aspects and then I'll come to the risks later. And I wanted to get your opinion on the pick. An average uh, user of Facebook spends around 41 minutes every day on Facebook and around 25 minutes on Instagram. So pretty much one hour on Facebook properties. Across the North America, they have like 72% of the population on Facebook. Asia, where they're growing really fast, they have 17% of the population. This is minus China. And Europe, they have around 41%. At the same time, Instagram is also growing very fast. And Instagram now has 800 plus million members and close to a billion. So they're, they're growing very fast over there as well. So that makes it very interesting. So now, uh, getting to their, uh, business. I think mo- it is fair to say that they are one trick pony even today, The all their, uh, revenue comes from advertising. And, uh, in terms of uh, uh, facebook's uh, revenue they they were growing at a pretty hefty rate so far till they announced the recent changes in terms of what they're doing and based on gdpr and other compliance issues they they said that they might they might slow down uh, in terms of their revenue and in terms of their margin in fact um, in the latest quarter the second quarter of 2018 the revenue was $13 billion, which was uh, an increase of 42% year-over-year. Year. So even without regulation risk, it is fair to say that at some point, the law of big numbers will catch up with them, so they cannot keep going at these rates forever. Kind of what I, I would like to uh, highlight here is that even, even if we consider that their margins are going to go down, their operating margin today is around I mean, that is unheard of. I think to give you some context, if you look at the margins of average S&P 500 or a median, the margin is around 19%. Considering that you're not going to capitalize their R&D and content, which I think you should. And if you do that, their margin will come up to 57%. We can assume that their margins will go down because of all the changes dig and Toby, you guys are much more the right people to uh, talk about valuation than me. So what I wanted to make the case for Facebook, uh, on the tenant, that when there is a lot of bad news, there might be value. So I'd like to know your opinion.
2: You know, Hari, I think it's a very interesting pick and there might be value. Because you you have to like factor in a ton of growth, but I do want to say that, Right now, if you look over the past eight years, so really since the time that they went public, the lowest the EV to EBIT has been, that was 18.4, and right now it's 20. And the median is 41. So, I mean, in historical perspective, it is interesting. Then you can always argue, is it just chronically overvalued? Because then you can't use these numbers for, for really anything. But it is interesting. Uh, but to get a decent return, I mean, we have the same problems that we have whenever we talk about Google. Like, you have to factor in some very generous double digit uh, growth rates. You know, you have to come up with a short run, call it five, seven years, whatever, like on um, something like 15, 20% annually or something like that. And I'm not saying it's not possible. You know, the way that Facebook has grown the revenue, I think it's been so impressive. One uh, worry I, I do have before I throw out to the guys in terms of talk more evaluation. One worry I have is what is the backup plan? Do they need a backup plan? 98.5% of revenue comes from digital advertising. Then they have 1.5% from other bets, which is primarily the uh, payment processing system. But, guys, uh, Preston and, and Toby, what are your thoughts on the valuation?
4: I think this is a very similar situation to Google in that the business is spectacular. Mm-hmm. The balance sheet is pristine. Market cap's $520 billion. Enterprise value's 480 So it's sort of net cash uh, and investments. P is 27 high, which is about half what Google is. So it's interesting. If you put Facebook on the same PE as Google, it becomes another trillion dollar company. I've spoken to Hari about this offline before because it's something that I, I have observed for a while too, that if you look at, as opposed to sort of the late 1990s dot-com boom, Where things were just crazy overvalued without sort of any underlying business. The FANG stocks now aren't sort of crazy overvalued if you believe that the historical growth rates persist. So Facebook's been growing at 40% plus for five years. You know, that's on the top line. EBITDA growth's like 60% plus. EPS is explosive, like 186% compound over five years. Kind of an amazing number. If you assume all of that holds, then it's probably half price. If you assume that it slows down or it runs into some headwinds, then it's probably expensive. But I get to the same point that I did with Google. I don't think there's very much downside and it's probably a much bigger company in 10 years than it is today. The question is just, you know, how much bigger does it continue to grow? And therefore is the is the valuation justified? For me, it's my bias is always to be more wary of growth rates. But you know, that hasn't been a great strategy for the last five years or so.
1: I think that you know you got a winner when people hate your platform and then they go on your platform to talk about how much they hate your platform. And Hari, you know what I really captured from everything that you said was everyone's mad. Everyone wants this to be fixed. Everyone wants their privacy to be protected. Facebook's going through some really rough times from a PR standpoint, but the numbers are telling us a different story. That's what I got out of what you said. And I think you're kind of right. I think the numbers are pretty much saying that everyone's still using the platform and they're not as upset as what they're basically what the media is making it sound like. I did the same thing as you Toby. I went back and looked at the top line growth and I got, you know, a very high number <laughs> like way higher than Google's. And that's something else. You know, I mean to have 40 almost 50% growth rate on your top line for the time it's been a publicly traded company is is pretty insane
4: you're getting a much higher growth rate and you're paying a much lower multiple. So I think of Facebook and Google, probably Facebook is much, much cheaper than Google at the moment.
1: Yeah. and Yeah. So. And from the numbers, you know, from the valuation standpoint, I, I completely agree with you. Because whenever I go and I drop the growth rate down into the coming 10 years at 10%, I mean, I'm coming up with a 5.5% return on the free cash flow of the business. So, I, I mean, it's a hard one. I personally can't stand Facebook. I just I just freaking despise it. No, I really do. I despise Facebook. I just think that it's the ultimate time trap. And I think that one of their challenges is there was some study I read, this was a while ago, that when people go on and they use Facebook, they feel worse about themselves after they're done using the platform. And I think that when, it, when you look at why was Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress versus Larry Page and Sergey Brin and some of these other folks. like Why Mark? And I really think it comes down to this idea that most people can't stand Facebook. Like Deep down inside, they hate it. It probably makes them feel like they're back in high school again or whatever, and they just can't stand the, the platform. Where Google, it's like, I think most people, if you ask a person, hey, how does Google make money? And they'd be like, oh, advertising, because people just know that it's advertising. But at the end of the day, Google is so much slyer at what they're doing and so much further under the radar at what they're doing that it's like, you know I don't mind Google. I like Google because the little bit that they... I mean, think about it. If I go onto a search engine and I'm trying to find something and, and Google gives me the first result and I don't have to search around for it, I like that. It's not like I... Feel like you know some person that I met ten years ago is bugging me with messages on Facebook. You know, like that's that's annoying. People don't like that. I don't know. I think that that's their challenge moving forward is how they manage this from a social standpoint and from a psychological standpoint with their users and like you know from a regulation standpoint, who's going to come down on them? But from the numbers standpoint, I'm with you, Hari. I think that the numbers look pretty good. I just I don't own this. I don't want to own it for some reason. Maybe these are all my biases coming out during the show. Is probably more of what it is. But I mean, those are some of my thoughts. Let's take a quick break and hear
0: from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise Flagship Fund plans to go on a buying spree A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member Fenra SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high dash yield dash account. Dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the
1: show. Okay, Toby, let's hear your pick.
4: I've got the highest tech pick for the day. I think it's Pilgrim's Pride EPC, which is like a chicken butcher distributor. As you can imagine, it's not as exciting as Facebook or Google and they don't make as much money. Chicken production, basically very fragmented industry, very cyclical. So if beef gets too cheap, then that hurts chicken prices. It's not a great industry. It's not one you buy as a compounder. Pilgrim's Pride has been hurt because they uh, not really sure what's going to happen with the tariffs. This is something that can get hurt because it distributes internationally. So, the reason though that you might want to own it is I think it's very, very cheap. So, market cap is about 4.4 billion, enterprise value is 6.4, which means that it's got some debt on its balance sheet. But you get it on a P of a little bit over seven, and the acquirer's multiple on it is uh, a little bit under seven as well. It's fine on all of the health metrics that I look at. Petrosky is about four, so not great. Altman Z score, which looks at financial distress is safe, which you know, given its debt load is something that I wanted to look at. Benish M score. So this looks at whether they're manipulating their earnings or not. This is sort of uh, on the fringe at negative 1.5, negative 2.2 is the cutoff there. Has a pretty reasonable return on invested capital around 20%. If I do a reverse DCF on it, you're sort of assuming a negative growth rate of about 1% at the current price and I I think that you're already compensated at this price for all of the risk that's in this stock so in December it was trading at $37 currently trading at $17.70 so it's off about 50% so it's got about 100% headroom I think DCF valuation it's been growing pretty consistently over the last 5 or so years about 5 or 6% so if you assume roughly 5% growth i get to about $27 30 for this stock so I think Plenty of margin of safety where it trades now. Not a great business, as I said, because it's very cyclical. But I assume that the tariff situation will sort of scare markets for a while. But when that goes away, it'll sort of be roughly back where it was. So I think twenty-seven thirty dollars is is a reasonable estimate for this stock.
1: Toby, let's talk your position on the whole tariff thing because I think that that's a really important part to understand this company. How do you see a lot of that playing out, or kind of how are you positioning yourself with respect to the risk of it?
4: I don't know how it plays out. It's one of those things that, you know, I'm just trying to take advantage of the situation as it presents itself now. I think a lot of these stocks are priced as if the worst news is the tariffs come in and these things are targeted. I think that that's the time to buy when you have that uncertainty. Once the uncertainty is gone, you know, I think this is going to be trading at a higher level.
1: I mean, from the numbers standpoint, I'm, I'm assuming Stig, you got very good numbers on this as well. I, I got great numbers on this.
2: Yeah, I have something like 9% even without growth. I always love whenever Toby is on pitching something because it's, uh, it's always cheap. And uh, <laughs> I, I like that. To what you said before, Toby, yeah, we're probably not looking at a lot of mode here. It is a pure play on chicken, which is, can be quite vulnerable. It goes a little under the radar. Because of the environment issues compared to beef. But of course, you have the animal welfare thing. You do see a shift as little as it is whenever it comes to that. You know, there were a few things that I found really interesting about this company. First of all, that they have like this major shareholder of 78%. And I also think a a diligent shareholder, uh, the way that the debt is financed is payable after 2025. I can't just, whenever I look at the landscape of companies, I can't really fathom why so many are doing short-term loans right now. Whenever they can secure something more, I wouldn't say for free, uh, but take a lot of the, uh, the risk off. So I really, really like that. It is creeping up because of the acquisition they did last year. They do have a bad history of too much debt whenever, well, actually they went bankrupt in 2008, but it's a very different company now. If some of you were to look at the company and like, this is not good whenever there's a recession, that really because of something else. And it's been restructured since. I think the main concern I have is the fear of overproduction. And you also hit on that, Toby, in terms of the cyclicality of the business. It really looks like we're evaluating something on a very low multiple, something that is probably a, call it leveraged uh, (laughs) earnings, whatever you want to call it. It seems like we're at the top, uh, not just in general market, but really like in the chicken business. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something you fear? in the sense that it is already very, very cheap. So you can't withstand some adversity or some, some headwinds.
4: Chicken prices are pretty beaten up at the moment relative to the last three years. And the, it's sort of below its five-year range. The stock is about where it was about five years ago, but it's considerably bigger stock than it was then. I think that People continue to eat chicken into the future. I don't see chicken consumption going away. How much that benefits Pilgrim's Pride, I don't know. But you know, it's not a bad business. They've got pretty good scale, pretty good efficiency. They're one of the big ones around. Sanderson Farms being the other one, Industrious Pachoco is a Mexican one, Tyson Foods. But they're acquisitive. So once a year, they do an acquisition, which is the reason for some of the debt. So I think that these guys have done a pretty good job over the last period of time sort of working through what is a tough industry. And I think if there's some weakness in the industry, it's to their benefit.
1: You know, Toby, that's where I was going to come at this, where you guys were saying there's not much of a moat. Is the moat just purely the, the market share that they already possess? So I'm looking at the last 12 months, they've done $11 billion in sales, which I think is quite a bit. I'm kind of curious what that market size is and what some of their competitors are.
4: It's the sort of business that you're really only competing on price. I don't think anybody walks into you know They sell, they sell through supermarket chains and restaurants and And other places like that, you're basically competing on price. So, the only way you expand market share really is you buy competitors or you lower your prices. But, you know, the prices are pretty low at the moment. So,
1: all right. Well, I guess I'm the last one to go here. And uh, the reason I'm the last one to go is because about 10 minutes before we started recording, I said, I've got to change my pick. I'm changing it to this. And I gave these guys no time to prep so they could pepper me with any kind of questions. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to lead with that. And the company that I selected was H&R Block. The ticker is HRB. This is not nearly as sexy as some of the other picks. I mean, it's, it's probably about as sexy as the chickens we were just talking about. But as far as Google and Facebook, it's, it's definitely uh, not there. When you look at this company, just to kind of give you a little bit of an overview, their top line is about $3.1 billion per year on their revenues their free cash flow hovers around i mean it's it's a little lumpy but it's not really growing and it's not contracting in fact 2018 was some of the best free cash flow that they've had in the last 10 years and it was at 751 million for the year so i look at this company really not taking more market share i don't see them really losing any market share i think that their competitive advantage is in the fact that when people go on to do their taxes Their tax information from the previous year is loaded into the cloud on their system. You know how to use their software; it auto flows all your information over to the coming year. And so, if you use H and R Block this year, you're very likely to use it again in the coming year because it's just ease of use. So, I think that there's a competitive advantage there for anybody that it was in this space to begin with. I think it's very difficult for newcomers to come into this space and kind of take market share. I like that from the numbers standpoint. I am pretty much keeping the growth really flat, maybe around a 2%, 3% growth just to keep up with inflation. And I also accounted for in my model about a 20% chance that you'd see a negative 5% growth going into the future. And with those numbers and the price that the stock is currently trading at, it's trading around $25, $26 right now. I'm coming up with a 14% return. And I'm looking at this Just like if if it was a fixed income bond is how I'm really kind of valuing the business. I think it's just going to continue to be pretty consistent moving into the future. And I feel like that's a pretty large yield considering where the rest of the market's at today. So I'm curious to hear everyone's thoughts now that you guys had 10 seconds to hear my pitch and to prepare for this. Let me hear what you got. Toby.
4: I like this pick for a few reasons. It's cheap on acquirers multiple basis, 6.9 times when I look at the balance sheet and the ratios, that it all looks really safe. Like if I, if I just go through Piotrowski 6, Altman, which is the financial distress, says it's very safe. Benish, which looks for manipulation, says it's not a manipulator. Market cap's 5.3 billion. Enterprise value is about the same. He's about nine, which is probably too cheap for something like this. If I look on a reverse DCF, it's assuming you get a fair value of around 33 bucks when it's trading about 25 Growth rate assumed very, very modest, where it's been growing pretty rapidly 7.8% over the last five years on a revenue basis, 7% on an EBITDA basis. So I think it's a good combination of it's a pretty good business at a pretty low valuation. I guess the, the qualitative questions are does the IRS ever get its house in order and send out those much simplified forms, which means that people don't have to do anything? They just sign off. Or do the sort of uh, the scrapers that the kids like to use, like Mint or when I say the kids, I use it too, you know, Mint or those things that track your, you know, the way I do my taxes, I use, it's an Intuit product, which just collects all of my data through the year. And I have a little app on my phone that I kind of direct to, you know, business expenses and so on. And then that pre-populates the, the tax that I then give to my accountant at the end of the year. So there's a sort of intermediary step in between these guys or do these guys work with an intermediary to kind of that's not an issue for them sort of questions for you Preston
1: I think most of their customers and I could be wrong about this but I think most of their customers are people who get a W2 at the end of the year no really other investments you know they're intimidated by the IRS forms and so they log on to this thing and it's it's literally a click through screen that they input the numbers right off their W2 and it just walks them through every step to make sure that they have like that sense of fear removed that they're going to get audited. I mean, all those those kind of concerns. When I mean, those people are the ones that are not going to be getting audited because the money's already been taken out of their W-2. But I think it's a sense of not knowing what you're doing and kind of using their software. That's my impression. I could be dead wrong about that. And I don't know what market share of their revenue is that person that I just described. But I just think that there's a very large mode around the fact that they have the history in the cloud of everyone's previous returns and all their information.
4: It's a funny stock that hasn't sort of hasn't gone anywhere for a really long, it's trading roughly where it, 10 years ago, it was trading at 25 bucks and here it is at yeah. like basically 25 bucks, but it's cheap. Yeah. So is it, is it the fear of the IRS doing that? What, what sort of, what's keeping the price down?
1: Well, and and, here's, and I, I want to caveat with what Toby just said, because I completely agree with him. But when you look at the payout ratio, the payout ratio in this company right now is 80%. So if whatever they're bringing in on earnings, they're paying 80% of that out to people in a dividend, which I think is great. So if the price doesn't move, so what? You're making decent return on the dividend. I don't know. I, I think that you, you, know, you get some of these companies that just continually trade at kind of a lower multiple relative to everything else. I think maybe the reason you might see it Trading at a lower multiple simply because there's no growth whatsoever. And I think everyone's growth hungry these days. So, and they're always growth hungry. <laughs> what am I saying?
4: <laughs> you know what is funny? The, the growth isn't that bad. The gro- It's growing faster than GDP. Growth rate for the last five years is about 7.8%. Last 10 years is about 2%. That's in a revenue line,
1: mm-hmm. which
4: is a bit lower. But the EPS has been you know, 10 years at 5.7%. That's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I liked it. I, I liked how ordinary it was and how kind of it's under the radar. And I, I think the numbers look good. But anyone else? Stig, I know you had maybe five seconds to repair because whenever I started talking to you when we <laughs> first turned on Skype, you
2: didn't even know that I changed my pick. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I guess my excuse will be that I didn't have too much time to come up with being like a really negative person on this pick. I mean, the numbers are absolutely amazing. I mean, especially in this market, I don't see a ton of red flags. We actually wrote an article on intrinsic value index not too long ago with uh, with Christoph, who we we're collaborating with. And it was about tax, T-A-X. That was the ticker, which is a very similar company. And so in general, within the industry, I don't know how much it applies to specifically the services of uh, HRB, but you see more and more optimization, which is also one of the reasons that HRB are closing down 400 locations. You see a lot of the need for, and this is just like a general thing about the industry. At less need for like speaking to the customer, the person one on one, and a lot more can now be done with uh, with computers and, and different systems than this. That's really like taking the customer now. So I don't think I would include a lot of growth. I don't think that was what you did, Preston. And and the thing is, you know, even if you if you see like a s- small decline, it's it's still a very, very decent pick. I mean, it sounds crazy after talking about you know Facebook and Google, where we're like trying to pump up like fifteen percent annually or twenty percent annually, and now we're talking about well, if it's only suck a little less year by year, it's still you know it's still okay, which is a very different discussion to have. But I think it's a very decent value pick to have, especially if you're an income investor.
4: They've been buying back stock too pretty consistently. So in 2000, 20 years ago, they had 400 million shares on issue and now they've got a little bit over 200. They've roughly halved the shares outstanding over close to 20 years. So they're doing the right thing. The only issue is that the managers don't own any stock.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of telling, isn't it? And also, Priston, talk about TurboTax Intuit and what are some of the risks is Intuit or TurboTax cannibalizing a lot of H&R uh, block customers is there still more room for turbotax to cause damage and another perspective is i know intuit is right here in the silicon valley they're doing a lot of work to revamp their technical stack their technology they're infusing a lot of new methods and methodologies so and i i can see that they're reinvesting in their technology in their platform and their payout ratio is like thirty percent compared to the eighty percent you said. So that means that they will keep investing more than H and Block.
1: So, I my personal opinion is Intuit is a great company. I think that they're much more developmental. They're coming up with a lot more products. They're in a lot other areas than H and Block. But from a pure numbers standpoint, by saying that Intuit is taking some of the or TurboTax or what you know, I know TurboTax is one of their divisions and one of their products. But to say that that's stealing market share from h and Block, I just don't see it. From a number standpoint, looking at the top line, I don't see it. So if they haven't done it in the past five years, I guess my impression is they're not going to do it in the coming five years because I don't think too much from a technological standpoint has really changed in the past five years. But I think the reason I bring it up, I want people to go out there and check it out. Uh, like I said, the ticker is HRB. Go look at some of the numbers, dig into it a little bit. Tell us on Twitter if you think we're totally missing something. We always appreciate that. <laughs> All right. So uh, we really, really enjoy these conversations. Toby, thanks for coming on the show. Give people a quick handoff to where they can find out more about you.
4: My website is com. That's got a free screener that shows the 30 cheapest in the top 1,000 stocks. And PPC, which was my stock pick, came from that screener. I'm on Twitter at Greenback, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D, and I talk to people and interact about stocks and things on Twitter. And finally, my current book is The Acquirer's Multiple. That's available through Amazon. And if you log in there, you'll see that I've got also quantitative value, which talks about some of the metrics that I discussed today. Thanks, guys.
1: And uh, Hari, give everyone a handoff where they can learn more about you as well.
3: Yeah, my usual place where I hang out my blog, uh, bitsbusiness.com, share your comments, and and give me your feedback. Thank
1: you. Well, we really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, If people are listening to this and you guys want just a quick link to that stuff that they mentioned, it'll be in our show notes. And uh, we just always enjoy doing this. So thanks for joining us, guys.
2: All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week.
1: (音楽) Bye. Bye. Bye.